Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. The Hillsdale Dialogue is about to begin. And even more uniquely, it is a Hillsdale Dialogue unlike any other because we are doing something I can't believe we haven't done before, but we have never done it. And that is to review Winston Churchill, not the statesman, Winston Churchill, the writer. More specifically, Winston Churchill, the writer of books. Because if we were going to attempt to cover his entire a collection of articles, essays, and book we'd never get done. But Dr. Larry Arn knows his church only joins me now. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. All of the Hillsdale dialogues, all 460 of them are collected at iTunes in order. Good morning, Dr. Arn. How are you? I'm good. I should announce to our audience another unprecedented thing, and that is you have done a lot of work in preparation <laughs> for these dialogues. <laughs> I read through about half it. I looked up and I said, who is this guy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I told someone, Arn will get a dart in somewhere. I've done all this work because I love the history of the English-speaking people so much. This is like my fifth time through the... I got a new copy so I wouldn't uh, be trapped in my old notes. And our mutual friend, Senator Cotton, said he's been looking forward to this. Not as much as I have. And I told him to go get the... uh, the Dorset edition. So we should tell people what we're going to do. We're going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on the history of the English speaking people. Then we're going to do great contemporaries. Then we're going to do a world crisis. Then we're going to do the history of world war two. We could be in this, in this rabbit hole for a long time, but Dr. Arn, we are going to begin with Churchill, the writer. The first segment here is about Churchill, the writer and, I, it just occurred to me fairly recently, and I ought to have thought it. You have a statesman who will be remembered through the ages, and he has a a corpus. He has a group of books written by a statesman. Who wouldn't want to read these books? Yeah, almost 50. And uh, he made his living that way, made his fame that way. Uh, it's, one has to adjust a little bit when you think about Churchill, because maybe Cicero is the only person rather like him. And and uh, that that means that, you know, he, he's a good writer. You, you picked out some wonderful passages from the English-speaking peoples. Uh, you have an eye for that, apparently. Well done. But uh, I'm done praising you now. But, I know. that's uh, Otherwise, I'll go into shock. It, uh, but, you know, he, he wrote up the story of civilization and his times. And uh, and so to be able to do that while he, you know, held every cabinet office, every major cabinet office there was, while he was a leader in his country through the two great world wars, uh, the prime minister in the second, lived through the Depression, you know, uh, the rise of Hitler, the rise of totalitarianism, and he wrote all these books. And one of the things that changes about him is he has perspective. He knows 
how you know what's unique and novel and what's customary and he's got criteria of judgment that few people have ever had what you just gave me was the answer to the question i was going to ask right away is there anything the like of churchill meaning a statesman who is also prolific we have a lot of people who will write one or two books often a memoir or they might proceed their public life with a book we've got lincoln who has no books uh, we've got Washington, who has no books. We've got uh, a number of British public figures who have written a book or two. But you had to go back to Rome. Napoleon didn't write a book. Napoleon was too busy. Should have. I guess he wrote a memoir when he was in exile. Yeah. But uh, and Grant wrote a book. But you have to really go back to Cicero to find someone who wrote throughout their life. Yeah, and it. it uh, he, you know, he, he, he. By the way, also painted five hundred paintings. More than that. And, you know, that's a big work, oil paintings. Uh, he was a restless and productive soul all the time. Oh, another thing, he uh, he wrote his own speeches, and they run to 8,000 pages, big pages, single-spaced in a eight-volume work. And so he was just very prolific. And so when I begin this, I want people to remember, if they are new listeners, you were with Sir Martin Gilbert at work on Churchill's official biography for how long? Uh, well, I, I started in 1977, and I left England with my wife, whom I met in his house in 1980. But I remained in association with him until he died, and I took over the finishing of the document volumes of the biography, and they were finished two years ago now. So the total biography is... Uh, eight big fat volumes of narrative, which he wrote, and eight, uh, 23 volumes of documents, uh, the last seven of which uh, we did in the president's office at Hillsdale College. But I worked on those things and all of that with him since the day I met him in 1977. You know, we are we are talking at a time when the FBI has seized a box of documents from Mar-a-Lago. If the British Secret Service had ever gone to Chartwell, what would they have found in terms of state secrets? Well, it uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the Churchill Archive includes photocopies of most of his official papers. And, uh, you know, that's it's a different day back then. Uh, he, uh, you know, he was a he was a, a strong anti-socialist, and in 1945, the socialists beat him. And between 1939 and 1945, he had become the greatest man in the world, and he was also the highest-paid author living at uh, when he when, when the war was over. He could make a lot of money writing, and so his story in the Second World War is going to be very valuable. And they and so what does he get to use? Well, the cabinet, uh, the prime minister's office, and the cabinet appointed a man named Norman Brooke, who was the secretary to the cabinet, to oversee what Churchill had access to, and he basically had access to everything. And uh, you know, and that he was he was personally friendly with most of the people in the socialist government, very violently politically opposed. They had great respect for him. They had served with him in the war. And they wanted this book to be published. 
be good for the country. They wanted it to be a big success. And so there were some crazy socialists who proposed that the government should get much of the revenues from the book. Uh. And Churchill was paid a million dollars. You know, think about when that was, right? For, uh, by uh, uh, the owner of Time Life. I've had a mental block. Um, Loose? Yeah, Henry Loose. He was paid a million dollars, you know, and that's in 1949. It's real money. Yeah, and he, that's the first time Churchill really became rich. He had, a, he had a good income all his life, and he spent it, you know, writing and working and living. Enjoying life. Yeah, he had a, you know, he had a very good life, and he, he had an incredibly intense life. He worked 16, 18 hours a day took naps, could go to sleep on command. He had blessings that I lack. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, so now he's in the chips. And they basically let him use about everything. There are some things in the public record office that are still closed. Uh, there's a 30-year rule there because the, the way it works is the, we get this is on the news, Donald Trump, but, uh, if you, you know, it's, it's all much more formal now than it used to be, but it was pretty formal back then too. And they had something called the 30 years rule. And that is official papers are released to the public 30 years after they're, uh, written. And it, you know, it happens on January the 3rd every year. So I had many days where I would go on January the 3rd, crack of dawn and report and to the British public record office and start looking for stuff. Uh, and, and so, like, the, some things that are closed today are, you know, you can only surmise what's in there, and you sort of can surmise when you think about the way official papers are generated, right? There's, there's something called the Global Strategy Paper of 1952, and that was issued under Churchill as prime minister, and it has to do with the use of nuclear weapons. And there's targeting doctrine in there, targeting places. So you, can, you cannot see that. You cannot see And I hope they do not release what he said about Her Majesty the Queen. More on that coming up. The young Churchill's books and the old Churchill's books and the preface to the history of the English-speaking people. Welcome back. In our short segment today, I'm going to just have Dr. Arn talk for five minutes about the young Churchill's book, the story of the Malacan Field Force, the River War, his unfortunate novel. I say unfortunate. Maybe you won't agree. But in the first... Fortunate. Uh, extremely fortunate? Yeah. Why? Uh, well, first of all, it's a hoot. Uh, second of all, his political inclinations emerge. Uh it's important that this fictional place, Lorania, is a naval power. Uh, it's important that there's a communist in it who's the chief villain. Uh, it's important that uh, this young man, Savrola, who's really just Winston Churchill, uh, it's a romance. And it's important that uh, he's after the president is an oligarch. He's not a tyrant exactly, but he's an oligarch. And the, the communist is the real tyrant. Uh, 
And it's important that Savarola is after uh, Malara, is his name, the, the, the oligarch, is after his wife, whose name is Lucille, and she's very beautiful. And sure enough, Savarola gets the state and the girl. <laughs> so. So, so tell me about uh, all the books not that we will not cover. We're going to cover Great Contemporaries, World Crisis, the History of the World, Second World War, and the History of the English-Speaking People. Of all the other ones, which would Dr. Arne propose someone read if they want to get a grip on Churchill and they're not going to spend as many years, hours, months, days that you did doing the reading? Uh, I would read Savarola because it's fun, and I would read The River War because it's profound and the best of his early books. Uh, I would read The World Crisis uh, and The Marlboro, his biography of the first Duke of Marlboro, because those are his two greatest works. Uh, I would read My Early Life because it's fun. Great contemporaries are going to talk about that. That's really good. And then I would read... You know, and because you love it so much, I would say you should read the history of the English-speaking peoples. Uh, If I don't get people trapped in the next many weeks, I'll never will. But I want a a word about Marlboro. You recommended that to me 30 years ago, along with his biography of his father, and I read both. I've never forgotten Marlboro. There are things I still know about Marlboro that I would not have known, and about early uh, 18th century England and Queen Anne. That, you know, makes me just laugh at the movies, etc., but... Marlboro was a magnificent man. I mean, just a magnificent man. Yeah, he never, uh, he, he's one of those rare generals who was in big battles against the strongest power on earth, and he never lost. Uh, and he was a first order statesman. And, and, you know, in all of these books, by the way, uh, Churchill does something that few do today, and it's a shame, right? I mean, today what we have is this hackneyed, despotic uh, progress is the, is the movement in politics. And it wakes up in the morning thinking that it's a new world every day and that whatever has been can pass away and we can substitute it with something new, which is bound to be better. And that's dangerous. That's the most dangerous force on Earth, in my opinion. Well... What about somebody who actually knows some, the story of things? Because a lot of really important things have happened, and many of them are very noble. And their tragedies and their triumphs in the past, and the old understanding and Churchill's understanding was you can learn from them, and it can make you better. And and you know you don't get to be, you don't get to have heaven on earth, uh, but you can make earth pretty good if you do a great job. And if you read Marlboro, I, my uh, grandchildren were in London when, when um, a couple of years ago they would go to Blenheim often because they were living in Oxford. And I said, make sure you explain to them what Blenheim is and why Marlboro got it. Because uh, in the history of the English-speaking people, Churchill says that along with um, uh, the first of the three great battles, that I, I've got to see my notes, it's not uh, Agincourt, it's the first one, uh, that Blenheim sits up there with Waterloo and 1918 is the most important events in English history. So you learn English history from Marlborough that you've got to know. Yeah. One of Victor, the great Victor Hansen's claims, good claim, is that great battles have effects that last hundreds of years. And Blenheim uh-huh. did. 
That one did. I'll be right back, Dr. Larry Arm. We're going to go over the second half of Churchill's writing career and then plunge into the history of the English-speaking people. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Winston Churchill published Great Contemporaries in 1937. Before he did that, though, he had written his history of the World War, in which he had been a central player. Not the second, the first, the world crisis. For the benefit of the Steelers fans, Dr. Ryan, can you summarize why Churchill would be uniquely positioned to write the world crisis? Well, uh, Churchill has a thesis that we will meet right at the, in the preface to the history of the English-speaking peoples, that it's a peculiar thing and a very advantageous thing to be an island. And that makes you a naval power. And that it can, and that means that you don't have to have a whacking big army. And that means you can have money fructifying, he loved to say, in the pockets <laughs> of the people. And you can have a balance between the king and the other forces in the land. And so everything stems from the English ch- Channel, which is not that old, by the way. 10,000 years ago, the, uh, the sea was lower, and, and, uh, and you know, so there was a land bridge to the continent. And if, there, if that had remained, then Louis XIV's army and Hitler's armies could have marched. Napoleon's up. armies. All of them, yeah. And so, so he thinks that that's incredibly important. And... It turns out he, and it's not it's not simply an accident. He's first Lord of the Admiralty and charged the political head of the British Navy when the First World War breaks out. And he wants to get at him. He wants to use the Navy in the way that that uh, Napoleon was defeated more or less by the British Navy. Uh, he was constrained. He couldn't trade. He couldn't get into Iberia where Spain and Portugal are, and. That, that's how he ended up losing. He got drained that way. And and there were these great naval battles where Nelson, you know, at the Nile and at Trafalgar and several places, every time he'd get up near the French Navy, he would destroy it all. <laughs> it, was, yeah. you know, it was really awesome. And so those were landmarks, right? They changed world history. And they changed world history without a danger of a of a... Uh, a strong man at the head of great army, like Hitler was, dominating British politics. Well, he wanted that to happen in World War One, and it was very difficult for a lot of reasons. One is the tr- it was so big that war. Uh, the trenches went from the Alps to the sea, and they were miserable places to fight. And so Churchill started looking for a way to- around. But the way around is you're going to have to go around the whole continent. And that's hard. And he had an idea of going into the Baltic to the north, and he had the idea that was eventually adopted. It wasn't first his idea to go through the Mediterranean to the Black Sea, you know, where Crimea is and Ukraine is, and join hands with Russia, force the Straits of the Dardanelles, and join hands with Russia and flank the German army that way. And that attack failed. Uh, a lot of reasons why it failed. It's a detailed story. Uh, Churchill was officially acquitted of responsibility for the failure. 
but he suffered grievous political consequences because he learned something. He was he was young. He was a very self confident man, and he was not uh, Machiavellian sufficiently. Uh, when the going got tough at the Dardanelles, people who had supported it began to back away, and Churchill wouldn't. And so when it broke down and it didn't work, he was left holding the bag. And, and you know, he lost his job, and he was disgraced. People would shout at him when he gave a speech for the next 15 years. What about the Dardanelles? 20 years. And, uh, and you know, the Dardanelles was tough because most of uh, many Australian and New Zealand people are still bitter about it because their troops went. And this attempt to get around the trenches succeeded really in just building a new set of trenches down there in the Gallipoli Peninsula. And they lost a lot of people. And so his, his reaction to that was what it always was. He wrote a six-volume book about it. And <laughs> this whole project that we are about for the next many months uh, was born when I was listening to, not reading, the World Crisis first volume, because it's the five years before World War I breaks up. Most Americans, if they know anything about it at all, will know the Guns of August, or maybe they read Robert Massey's Dreadnought, or they'll get some idea that there was this series of interlocking treaties that led them to war. All of it is laid out by Churchill, who was there. He knows when Lloyd George came around. He knows when the lights began to go out over, and the, and the fleet was ready. Right. I mean, that's it's it's history written by someone who is still moving in history with an eye on history. But it's written by him after it's all done. It's really a remarkable document. And, you know, Churchill, when he writes this book, first of all, he's stinging. Right. It's uh, he got hammered and he's in his 40s. Yes. Got all his powers. And and so it is a masterpiece, as is the Marlboro, in my opinion. Uh, and and uh, uh, the, the interesting peoples, which we're going to talk about, that has the benefit of experience and skill honed through a lifetime. It doesn't have the energy of those two greatest books or of the River War. But it does have the advantage of a system in place that is then by then well practiced. Yeah, he, yeah, he's he's at the you know he's. He was a great man, and he got better with time. And uh, there's some really, uh, about how he wrote the English-speaking people, there's some really cool stuff. Some of it, uh, I may be the only living person who knows, so I will tell you all about it. Uh, I, I love, but before we go there, then he does write his history, before he goes to the history of the English-speaking people, begun before World War II, I think the first line it is, is, when I went to the Admiralty on April 3rd, 1939, all this was set aside, meaning the history of the English people, speaking people, the book slumbered peacefully. Okay, so he goes back, he fights and wins a war that he ought not to have been able to win. And he's triumphant. He need not do anything except speeches, honorariums, and honorary degrees. And he pumps out 10 more volumes and more. Um, what in the world possessed him? Uh, well, he had a demon, you know, he, he was, uh, he, he could tell the story. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's not different. Uh, there's a record of him talking to Joseph Chamberlain 
you know, father of Neville, colleague of his daddy, eventually enemy of Churchill, a great parliamentarian. And he said, you should go into politics, young man. And Churchill replied, I don't think I could ever produce the volume of writing that, that would make that would be necessary to that. Uh, but what happens? It, it starts right away. Uh, he's he, he he's going out having adventures. He wants to, he decides he wants to be get elected to parliament, and he wants to get elected to parliament the way Tom Cotton wanted to get elected to parliament. He's going to go to war. He's going to have people shoot at him. See, and he he discovered that he liked that. But then, to an astonishing development, he could write. And he became the authoritative, most attended to war correspondent through those early wars that he was in. And he was a second lieutenant. It just irked the, the generals no end. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, he's 26, he's 25, and he's commenting on their strategic, strategic errors and stuff. And so they passed a law that he couldn't write. You couldn't write while you're serving our officer, so he would resign his commission for a while and write a bunch of articles, and then join back up. And they, and they had to take him. Now I have Aunt behind me. I got a note this very morning from Andrew Roberts, our mutual friend, magnificent historian, who happened to see that on a special report appearance recently, the Last King of America is behind me because I've read it recently. It's behind me, and uh, Andrew Roberts is prolific. But he's prolific as a historian. He's not also off fighting wars and coming back and reorganizing his notes. He is continuously prolific. I just think the stopping and the starting of the writing projects is itself something to be reflected on is great. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, it. he didn't, by the way, he didn't write books in the middle of the wars. Uh, He wasn't actually superhuman. Just almost. (laughs) And, uh... There is a story about the English-speaking peoples. Are we still talking about the world crisis? Because no, we're about to transition to English-speaking peoples, so go there. Well, uh, one day in 1978 or 9, uh, a nice little compact man whose, whose appearance I can remember exactly, and I can't remember his name, and I didn't take notes, so Martin Gilbert is now spinning in his grave. Oh, dear. Uh, he came to be interviewed, and he had worked in the Admiralty, uh, in the office of Winston Churchill at the beginning of the Second World War. And he reported that Churchill would take time in his lunch hour and dictate passages for the English-speaking peoples, and that every few days his bank manager would stop by to check progress, because when he finished the section he was working on, he got a big progress payment, and he could make up his debt to the bank. And uh, you <laughs> know, I, I always thought that was, you know, he says he laid it aside, but here's an eyewitness, and I can't remember his name, so of course Churchill's writing that he laid it aside has to stand, but I don't think it's true. And uh, I think he attempted... Well, that would go to the meaning of laying aside, wouldn't it? Yeah, As his lawyer in abstentia, I would say laying aside, meaning not devoting 24-7, 365 to it. He, he you know, he, I mean, it shows, by the way, you know, Churchill was a great-souled man. And just think, you know, like, if you're broke, if you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, that's a concern, right? 
And if in the middle of that concern, you are one of the most productive people in the world in war and peace, that's a big soul. That is a giant soul. And to it, we shall turn next. The History of the English-Speaking People preface when we return as we begin our journey into that book with Dr. Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. And all of the dialogues, including every dialogue in this series, at iTunes under Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned, America. Quote, it aims to present a personal view on the processes whereby English-speaking peoples throughout the world have achieved their distinctive position and character. So writes Winston Churchill in the preface, a very important chapter, denominated by Roman numerals, Dr. Arne, a personal view. What does that mean, a personal view? Uh, Well, he's become the greatest man in the world, and he's going to write whatever the heck he wants. (laughs) And... uh, you know, he got, uh, uh, th- there was a, a better time than today when uh, historians were a sort of professional union or caste, and they didn't welcome outsiders. And, you know, there's some truth in that because somebody who's been like Martin Gilbert, he just knows a lot more history than anybody, including me. And Andrew Roberts, for that matter, knows more history than I do. Uh, that's what he does. Yes. Uh, I mean, apart from being a really good guy at a party. Um, so, uh, how can a guy tell the story of the, of the English people, you know, when he's not a pro? And it, it's partly because he's not a pro and because he has an insight into politics because that's what he did, that that's why the book is interesting. Oh, it's, it's so interesting for that reason. There are four volumes. There are three books in each volume, so we're going to spend at least uh, an hour on each volume. But I've got to say, in the preface, he must put what he believes to be most important, right, Dr. Arn? He wants to make sure that you read what he thinks is most important. And I discern from that on, on Roman numeral 11, Parliament, trial by jury, local government run by local citizens, even the beginnings of a free press may be discerned. At any rate, in primitive form, by the time Christopher Columbus set sail for the new word, new world, and then he says, it is a very delicate plant, this parliament. There is nothing inevitable about its growth. The whole four volumes are about parliament. Yeah, it, uh, so, you know, what are the fundamental institutions of free politics? They are representative government, which means parliament. They are separation of powers, and they are uh, federalism. That is, locating control as near the people as, who are governed as possible. And Churchill favored those things all his life. And those are features of the American Constitution, alas, passing into decay. We have to revive them. Uh, and... And it, you know, it, it just, if you, if you just think about those things, uh, when you get those things, there are constraints on anything arbitrary the government might do to you. They can't, uh, one person can't do it by himself, one branch can't do it by itself, and you're part of the, you're a member of the populace for whom the government works. 
so Churchill isolated those things. And that's the story that he wants to draw out from here. And also, I, I, there's a, there's a subchapter, Doctor, in that a nation could be in the shade and it can turn back into the light or it can go deeper into the darkness. There is a lot of history in 2000 years or back to 55 B.C. and Caesar. And there are times when it's pretty dark. Edward II and Richard II. I mean, there are times when it's all over. But he, this book gives people hope, doesn't it? Yeah. They, uh, 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 Churchill, you know, he writes, you know, we might, we, we might after we finish all this history, you know, when we're dead, uh, <laughs> we might uh, read some of Churchill's greatest essays because four or five of those are profound reflections on fate and the cycles of history. And he doesn't understand them to be cycles, uh, except that we're flawed people, and so we can't keep our greatness together. But the potential for it is always there. And, and uh, that's, you know, uh, Churchill took great comfort from the fact that chance plays a large part in human affairs. Oh, boy, does it ever come through in, in English-speaking peoples. Let's close this hour with this quote. Knowledge of the trials and struggles is necessary to all who would comprehend the problems, perils, challenges, and opportunities which confront us today. He's writing in 1956, but I believe that to be true at this very moment. If you don't know backwards, you can't know what to do forwards. Yeah, well... Uh, the, the present is fleeting, and the future is obscure. You've got the past. And, uh, it, you know, that's, that's where the treasures are. And, they're, you know, they're not easy to mine. You have to think about them because uh, we are people with volition. We can choose, and that means we're unpredictable. And there's chance in human affairs, too. And so it means history doesn't repeat itself. But... The, the, the patterns of things are apparent there or else nowhere else. The pattern book is The English-Speaking Peoples. The project has begun. Come back next week when we take on book one of volume one, The Island Race. Dr. Arne, of course, all of the previous conversations available at HughForHillsdale.com or at iTunes. Just type in Hillsdale Dialogue. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.